But I really feeling just, just for a while and just in talking to Jacques, you know, I'm not one of those guys, you know, some churches like, what's God saying? What's, what's our vision for the year? What's our theme for the year? What's our message for the year? And I've never been able to come, come up with it. I don't generally see things like a year ahead. It's like I struggle to get through today. Yeah. And God does speak and he does prophesy. But even in prophecy, you know, it's, it's difficult sometimes until that thing comes about to interpret exactly, yeah, or to try and make a prophecy happen. That can be really scary as well. Abraham did that. Um, Israel did that, asking for a king. So it's not that, but I'm really feeling, and again, this is a, this is a challenge because there's a sense of, Will God prophesy over a group of people? And the answer is yes. He does, he has done, and he will continue to do. But we are also individuals with individual responsibility before God. But I do think there's a sense, or I believe there's a sense that God is, is shifting things at the moment. For us as a church, for, for Josh Jen, for 412, there's, that it seems like just spiritually, there's a new dynamic coming into play. People are, are walking into different roles, different areas of responsibility. We're trusting for uh, new seasons of, of, of greater fruitfulness, especially in some of our partnering churches like in Switzerland. Um, we're trusting that Clarence has a, an amazing time there and a fruitful time. But I really believe that particularly for you as a congregation, as I've been praying and uh, just considering a lot, because I know a lot of you guys, even though I'm not here that often. And some of you I've known for a long time. Do you realize that I, I used to do a year of your life program, and the very first year I did was 30 years ago, Wayne Dodd. 30 years ago. Okay, 20 years. 30 years ago I came to South Africa, sorry. 20 years ago. Almost to the day. Almost to the day. And Wayne Dodd was... One of the pioneers of Year of Your Life. Yeah. Just after the dreads, yeah. Ryan Kingsley was in that group. Yaku and Sharon, who were heroes of the faith, part of Josh Jen. When we arrived, they were already here. Liam Margot who were in Durbanville with us back in the day. And it's been incredible. It's been a wonderful privilege to see how many people have grown and changed and God has transformed. We, we, we've been listening about um, being sanctified, being made holy. And that is a lifelong process. We have been made holy, but we are being made holy. That's Hebrews 10 where God says, for by a single offering, that's by the blood of Jesus, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So those who are in the process of becoming more holy are considered holy. And I just, this wasn't what I prepared, but I, I do feel like we need to understand what holiness is. Because if that's our desire to be holy it'd be a good idea to know what that is, what we're aiming for. Because for many people, holiness is, let me just do more spiritual things. That isn't holiness in and of itself. I often say, you know, when Abigail, my, my youngest daughter, was growing up, she had a friend when she was little, and she played with this friend all the time, and this friend never swore, this friend never lied. This friend never refused to share. This friend was never rude to her parents, not once. But she's not going to heaven. You know why? She's too boring. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm so naughty. No. She's not going to heaven. You know why? Because she's a Barbie doll. So she's never done anything wrong. But she's not holy. Because holiness primarily is not about what you don't do. Holiness is a positive attribute. 
It's something that God deposits in us. And first and foremost, we have to recognize that God is holy. And what does that mean? Because God is holy. He says, be holy as, as I am holy. But we can't really totally be holy in the sense that God is. And I'll explain that. Because holiness, the word holy, literally means to be set apart. So God is set apart. He is holy. How is God set apart? Well, he's set apart in two ways. One is different from any created thing because God is uncreated. God is infinite. God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. So he is unique. And in that sense, he's set apart from his creation. And theologians call that his majestic holiness. Because that is a holiness in which we could never aim to be. We will never be infinite. We will never be all-powerful. We will never be omnipresent. We will not be all-knowing. But God is. But there's another aspect to God's holiness. And that's his character. And he is different from all of creation because he is perfectly loving. He, he alone is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfect in all of his ways. And so there is a moral holiness that God possesses. And so we look at that and we look at God and we see his majestic holiness and we see his moral holiness. And when we, when we focus on his majestic holiness, it causes us to bow down and worship him. But when we see his moral holiness, it should cause us to want to imitate him. I want to carry the character of God, the character of Jesus. I'm a long way from that. But hopefully I'm closer now than I was yesterday or a year before or a year before. And God wants us to be holy. So he doesn't just want us to be goody two-shoes, doing all the right things, coming to church, praying, giving to the poor. Those are things holy, pe things holy people do. They're not things that make people holy. He says, you'll do that because I've set you apart. And I've set you apart for a purpose. I haven't set you apart just to sit on a shelf and be a cute thing that people come into my house and look at. I've not set you apart. I don't want to make you beautiful just to hang on the wall like one of Milani's paintings. And in fact, many of Milani's paintings actually aren't just beautiful things on the wall. They serve a purpose because many of them have a prophetic message. They serve a purpose. Somebody comes into your house and goes, that's a beautiful picture. And you say, yeah, let me explain all about it. And there's the gospel. God sets us apart for a purpose. For a mission, just like in the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle and God said, make all these things for use in the tabernacle. I want you to make candlesticks and an altar. And then he said, then you sanctify them. You set them apart. You pour oil on them and they will become holy. And oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And scripture tells us that when we get saved, when we come into relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit fills us. His oil comes and sanctifies us. It sets us apart for a purpose. And all of those things for the temple, from that day on, they could be used for nothing else. The priest couldn't go and look at the candlestick and go, oh, it's a bit dark in my tent. Let me just borrow that and use it in my tent. You got the death penalty for that, for using a holy object for an unholy purpose. And God says, I've set you apart. You are a people belonging to me. You are a holy nation. You are set apart from this world, not to be used for the world, but to use in the world for my purpose, to display my glory. And I think we... Well, theologically, we, are, we have the right answers most of the time. And if I kind of did a survey we'd, and put our hands up, we'd have the right theological answer. But I think in our hearts and in our lives and in our everyday practice, I think often we lose sight of that. When I was in sales, and I was really good at sales, my primary purpose in life was not to be the best salesman. But I wanted to be the best salesman. Because then when people say, how come you're good at, so good at sales? 
In fact, I had, to, I had a conversation with a, a manager of another company. He said, Mike, tell me, what do you do when you're not doing sales? I said, well, I'm involved in a church. He said, what do you mean you're involved in a church? I said, I'm an elder in a church. He said, what's that? I said, you know, I'm a leader, you know. He said, well, what does that involve, like, practically? I said, well, you know, we, we have leaders' meetings. I do training. We do Sundays. We go pray for people. We have people in our home. We disciple. He said, that sounds like a lot of work. How much time do you spend on that in a week? And I'd never considered that. Because I wasn't clocking on and off. It was my passion. It was something that was just flowing out of me. And I, can I confess, even as an elder, now that I get paid to do that, sometimes I have to stop myself because it's no longer flowing out of me and I find I'm doing what I'm doing out of a sense of obligation or pay. Is that a shocking... And I have to remind myself why I'm doing it and who I'm doing it for. And so he said, how many hours a week does that take? So I did a quick thumb suck. I said, oh, probably about 40, 50 hours a week. He said, I don't understand. He said, I've never seen anybody as successful as you in sales who's not obsessed with sales. And I was able to say, you got it wrong. I'm as successful as I am because I'm not obsessed with sales. It's because I'm obsessed with Jesus and he's the one who makes the way for me in my life. And my success is a testimony to his grace, not to my ability. And so I tried to do my best because it meant I was a testimony to God. Because that was my primary purpose. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why you're set apart. That's why you're holy. It's not Sunday comes along, we have some nice tunes, and a prophet comes forward and says, sanctify yourselves, and we come forward and have a bit of an emotional moment. It's about positioning myself to, yes, be stripped away of the things of this world, to be stripped of the things that don't look like Jesus. So that when I walk out of those doors, I can be a better reflection of who he is to the world. Not so I can just feel better and have a goosebump moment. And how that looks for you, you've each got, whilst we've got one overriding purpose to glorify God, each of us has got a, an aspect of that overall purpose that God has fit us together so that together we do the work. I can't prophesy like Milani. I can prophesy, I can be very prophetic. And I love traveling with Milani, ministering with Milani, because she starts prophesying, opens her, I jump in the river and have lots of fun. But I can't break open that prophetic river the way Milani can. I love working with Brett. Brett just loves words of knowledge and healing and miracles. Now I can do that, but not like Brett. So I love it when he breaks it open and I can jump in it. But what happens if Milani suddenly says, oh, I don't want to prophesy today? Can God bypass her? Technically, yes. But we're all likely to suffer because she isn't fulfilling her purpose. And so we've got this, this kind of concept, this principle at work that God has called us corporately to take the land. We're Joshua generation after all. <laughs> and the whole nation of Israel were called to take the land. But it's interesting when we come to partway through the book of Joshua, around about, uh, let me get the right scripture for you. I always say it's quite useful if you do use the occasional scripture when you're preaching. Okay, I'm not, between Joshua chapter 13 and Joshua 21, if you want some reading to do, read that this week. It'll inspire you, it'll build your faith. Because what happens is, you've got the people of Israel, the children of Israel. They were since, they were, they'd had these prophecies under Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And Joseph had gone into Egypt, saved Egypt, and what was the thanks that he got? His, his descendants were taken into slavery for 400 years. And so the, the children of Israel have been given this promise, you will have this land. And then for 400 years, they had to serve as slaves 
until God raised a deliverer. And they're delivered out of Egypt. And then they wandered in the desert for how long? Another 40 years. That was an optional 40 years. That was because of their disobedience. And sometimes some of you might be saying, why am I not walking in the promises of God yet? For some of you, it's not God's timing. Some of it, it's your fault. That sounds a bit brutal. But let me tell you, I got prophesied over when I was about 14. God's got a call on your life, calling you to church leadership to be an elder. I said, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be an idiot to want to be an elder. I still kind of think that. You've got to be a little bit special up here to, be, to want to be an elder. Don't want to be an elder unless God's called you to it. And for years, years, that was 14. For the next 12 years, I did everything to run away from being an elder. I wanted to be successful in business. I, I, I tried everything. And then eventually, God brought me to the end of myself. And I was saying, God, why, why, am, I, why am I broke? Why is everything going wrong in my life? You're supposed to love me. And he loved me by bringing me to a point where everything was gone in my life. And I, then I thought, well, what do I do now? And I said, God, I'll give you one year of my life. I'll give you one year to figure out what I'm supposed to do. That was January of 1994. And I came to South Africa for one year. 30 years ago. And now I've just sent my eldest daughter to the Isle of Man for one year. And I'm saying to my wife, you know what? I went for one year and didn't come back. Just prepare your heart just in case. But even that, it's like, I can't hold on to my daughter if God's calling her somewhere else. And so some of us go around the mountain because of our own stubbornness and disobedience. Just like the children of Israel didn't immediately enter into the promised land. I've preached many times and somebody, often somebody will come up to me and say, Mike, you know, but I've been saved 20 years. I know what I'm, and cheekily, I have said this in the past, occasionally. No, no, I think you've been saved for one year and just repeated it 20 times. <laughs> yeah? How many times must I go around the mountain, Lord? Well, until you learn, you know, to take the indicator off and walk in a straight line. You know, it is said that the reason the, the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years is they were led by a man, and he refused to stop and ask for directions. But sometimes, sometimes it's because God's timing is different from ours. David was anointed, it was over 20 years before he became king. But you're saved for a purpose. And in one sense, your purpose begins now. You may not walk in the fullness of it, but I, I don't know what the fullness of my calling is. Even now, as an old gray-bearded guy, I'm simply walking in this stage. I believe God's got more. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I'm going to keep wanting to move forward till the day that I can't move anymore, and then I graduate into the fullness. But what I learned 30 years ago was not to grasp for even, even the calling of God I can make mine and it doesn't belong to me. My calling, my destiny, my dream. No, it's his. But I've learned, what do you want me to do today, Lord? What, what have you got for me now? And let me be faithful to that. And let tomorrow take care of itself. But I've also been around long enough to know that sometimes I get disillusioned and disheartened and tired and offended and feel overlooked and misunderstood. There have been times when Andrew's got up here and said things about me and I'm like, well, okay, but I think you've misunderstood me. And then I've got a choice. Get all offended and upset or just, well, move forward. And so many people, and I'm talking this as an encouragement to so many of us who've been serving the Lord for a long time. Do you still have your eyes fixed on Jesus and his calling for you like you did in the early days? 
He still is crazy and wild. I remember a young lady in this congregation came up to me. She, she'd been saved about a month. And she said, some of my friends and my family tell me I need to calm down a little and stop being so extreme. I said, please don't. I said, the problem is, as Christians, we get so lukewarm that when we see somebody who's the right temperature, we think they've got a fever. And so we want them to cool down instead of being challenged for us to warm up. And part of this process of sanctification is stripping away some of that tiredness, disillusionment, selfish ambition, um, all of these things, and to rededicate ourselves, not just for goosebumps, but for the purpose of God. God, I want to look more like you so I can be used better by you. We've got a purpose, guys. And there's nobody here who doesn't have a purpose. I've told you many times when I was young and I looked at the different parts of the body, you know, we're one body with many parts, I was convinced I was the appendix. Because nobody knows what the appendix does. Yeah. You, do, you ignore it completely, then it gives you a bit of trouble and you just remove it as quickly as you can. And I thought I was the appendix. I thought, yeah, I'm part of the body, but I've not got any significant part to play. Interestingly, scientists are now discovering that the appendix plays a really important role in the body. See, even me. <laughs> a tonsil. Yeah, Milani is definitely a tonsil. <laughs> I, I want to say, if you hear, you're not a tonsil. You're not an appendix. You're an integral, important part of the body of Christ with a purpose and a function that we need, that I need. I need Nikki Carstens, and it pains me to say it. <laughs> I mean, I'll get a literal pain when I, when I say something nice about Nikki. No. I love Nikki dearly. You're a legend, bro. I need a Mervis. I often say this. Mervis, if I wasn't saved, I'd never hang around with him. He's way too marshmallowy. It makes me uncomfortable when he's so nice. Like you've heard of the love languages. Where I grew up, you know, the different love languages, you've got words of affirmation or gift-giving or time. Where I grew up, the love language was sarcasm and insults. I get really uncomfortable around guys who, who are nice, which is why I need Mervis. Because he's like Jesus in an area that I'm not. And I can blame my upbringing or my culture I used, to, I used to boast that I was an introvert. And I realized I became an introvert. It was my survival mechanism. Because I went to a school that was hell for seven years. I had no friends at school. That probably doesn't surprise you. <laughs> I was persecuted at school. I was persecuted for being a Christian. I was the only boy in my year who would profess Christ. I was persecuted for being working class in an expensive private school that I got a scholarship for. And my, I, I can't believe this, but they thought I had a strange accent. And so my response, some people's responses do anything to fit in. My response was, stuff you, I don't need you. And it was an ungodly response. It was my survival mechanism. And then I grew up to be an introvert. And I realized I've trained myself to be introverted. And so I don't tell people I'm an introvert anymore. I say, it's more comfortable for me to be introverted. My tendency, if left to my own devices, is to be introverted. But I can't say I'm an introvert because Jesus wasn't. And I don't want to be the best version of me. That's not what sanctification is. It isn't about Jesus making you the best version of you. It's about making you like him. We are not some self-help industry. I went into a bookshop the other week. I said, can you tell me where the self-help section is? And, and the assistant said, I could, but that would defeat the whole purpose. <laughs> Jesus has come to make us new, not to make us better. 
He's come to set us apart, to make us a holy nation, a royal people, a, a nation belonging to him for a purpose. And it's the same purpose that Israel had. When you look at the calling of Israel, the calling of Israel was, I'm going to set you apart for myself as a people. I'm going to give you a land and you are going to draw all nations to my holy mountain to worship me. And after a while, because of humanity, pride, all of these things, they forgot their mandate. And they started saying, thank you, God, that I was not made a Gentile. I'm superior to the people around me. I'm better. I'm more holy. Instead of saying, God, I'm a recipient of your grace. And the nations around us need to, need to find you. We will bring them to you. And we are the same community of faith where God says, I've set you apart. I've made you a nation belonging to myself. And your purpose is to bring people to God's holy mountain to worship me. And this holy mountain now isn't just in Sunningdale. It's not a physical place. But our job is to bring people to worship God. And we are called to be distinct. Now in the Old Testament, it was a lot of physical stuff like the beards and the hair and the lack of tattoos and the clothes that they wore. But it was God saying, I want it so that when people look at you instantly, they will know you are different. And we need to live such lives like that. It's not about the clothes we wear, how many tattoos we may or may not have, what shape our beard is. But when people look at us, they said there's something different. I love the story of Thomas and Faye going off to Switzerland. Average, normal, everyday, nothing special as Andrew was. <laughs> you were really special. We loved you and we were sad to see you go. But they went. And they weren't elders, they weren't apostles. But they went to Switzerland, found a local church, just to try and do local church, not going in there trying to be apostolic and look at me and the next answer. They just went to try and love Jesus. And even the Christians in the town went, what is so different about you? Why are you so weird? And just through that, not, just by being holy, they've affected so many lives. Yes, and people actually did try to dull me down and told me to stop being so on fire. You know, um, it created quite a stir, yeah. I was told often that I was like a bright spot, you know, like, <laughs> it was a German expression, so. <laughs> but yeah, they said, why are you investing so much of yourself, someone said to me, in church. Yeah, so it was a real testimony. And in Switzerland, where conformity is a big deal, right? Don't stick out, don't be different, conform, be normal, be average. And I remember speaking to Roland, the, the, the leader of the church there, and he was like, it caused him this major existential crisis because he said, I actually don't believe in like, the, the speaking, people speaking in tongues, but like, what do I do? And he came to a conference. I don't believe in prophecy, and Andrew prophesied over him. And then afterwards, he, he asked me to, to, to lunch, and I went for lunch with him. And he's going, yeah, but this whole speaking in tongues thing, I, I don't believe in it. And I, and I shared my story where I'd wrestled through the whole thing. And I said, listen, let's do a deal. Let's just pray. And you can say, God, if this is from you, I want it. And if it's not, I don't. The next thing, he's stood there shaking, crying out in a new language. And then he was different. And he went back to Switzerland, and the rest, most of the congregation said, whoa! Compromise and become normal, or we'll fire you. Basically, in short, he said, I can't. I can't. I can't go back. And it cost him everything. Literally everything it cost him. But he knew he was set apart for a purpose. That, that was part of the process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. It was part of a process of representing Jesus better and looking more like Jesus. And it cost him. And he's still paying the price.
But Jesus is worth it. And that's what the Israelites found. And one of my favorite scriptures on the eve of going into the promised land. God speaks to Moses and says, when you go in, I'll send an angel ahead of you. And Moses said, no. He said, unless you go, I don't want to go. And to paraphrase what he was saying, he was saying this, I would rather live in a tent in a desert with you than in the land of milk and honey without you. And that's part of sanctification. It's not just, I, I want to stop telling lies. I, I, want, I, want, I want, it's, God, I want to be stripped away of the things of this world that drag me away from you. And so the Israelites went in, and I'm not going to get to what I wanted to preach, but I'll, I'll summarize it this way. After seven more years, so they've had 400 years of slavery, 40 years of wandering in the desert, then seven years of warfare, and the time comes when God says it's time for each individual tribe to come to Joshua and find out what their individual inheritance is as a tribe. And each tribe comes forward. And if you read it in your own time, you'll find it's actually... Quite a depressing read in some ways because what you see is the seed in there of so many failures. You see Ephraim and Manasseh who wanted land on the east side of the Jordan, not part of the promised land because they said, this is good for our cattle, this is good land. And what appealed to the eyes was not what God had promised. And they were the first to be defeated and taken into captivity because they'd chosen what was good to the flesh rather than what was promised by God. We see one tribe where they were supposed to destroy the enemy, and instead of destroying the enemy, they said, what we'll do is we'll, we'll make them pay tribute to us. We'll conquer them, keep them alive, and they have to pay tribute. And what we read much later is the roles were reversed, and that which they thought they had in control grew in power and controlled them. And that's what's happened when, when we don't take sanctification seriously. We've got an area of sin. I go, it's just a small area that I've got under control. And over time, it will grow to the point where it controls you. Because sin gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. And you see all of these challenges. But you see some beautiful things as well. The tribe of Naphtali. The tribe of Naphtali is given this land and it is the most insignificant piece of land ever. There's, there's no places in it that, that were important, that were rich, that were significant militarily. They just got this insignificant, insignificant piece of land. And if I was to ask you, name the 12 tribes of Israel, be honest with me, how many of you would have got to Naphtali? Right, not many. Judah, yeah. And for centuries, Naphtali and her land were insignificant until something came about as prophesied by Isaiah because Naphtali included the area of Galilee where the Messiah appeared and began to minister. And so even areas of insignificance, people who feel insignificant, people who go, God has not promised me much. Promise, I, I was honestly... I'm not a gifted person. I'm not a naturally talented, charismatic, gifted person. You don't have to agree with me. I wasn't, I wasn't captain of any school teams because I wasn't an, on any school team. I wasn't top of the class. I was, but I gave God my nothing. I said, God, I've got nothing to give you, but you can have my nothing. I don't want this to sound like me, but what God has done through me has been wonderful to see. It's humbling because I know it's not me. I see probably about 80, 90 churches at the moment in Brazil looking and asking me for perspective. My daughter on the Isle of Man, she sent me a message. She said, everybody here has got a story about you. <laughs> I'm not saying they're all good stories, but even those stories. She, <laughs> They're mostly funny. She said, I just met a guy. He said, when you came here for the first time, he visited church, he heard you preach, and he gave his life to the Lord that morning. I thought, Thank you, Jesus. Because I had nothing to offer, 
but those nothing become significant. My nothing, I'm talking about um, our year of your life program. And there's little old me, and it was an insignificant little program of eight people. And I look at Wayne, the man he is now, compared to the boy he was then. <laughs> Ryan Kingsley, who is a school leaver, bright and bushy-tailed and excited about everything. The most excitable person I've ever met in my life. You can give him a sandwich and he'll go, Man, that's the best sandwich I've ever had. But that young teenage boy is now a man ministering apostolically around the world. Not down to me. I think he would have been there regardless of... But I was privileged to be part of his journey. Insignificant nobody. And then there's, there's lots of stories, but I want to talk about the Levites. Because each of these tribes, they came from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? And Jacob, when he was dying, he prophesied over each of his sons. And one of the prophecies he made was on, over Levi. And basically, you can go read it, it's in Genesis. He basically says, you will have no inheritance because you sinned. You dishonored me. Imagine being Levi. Imagine being one of the 12 tribes and you're about to go into the promised land. You've come out of Egypt and you're thinking, okay, but I've been told I'll get no inheritance. How many of us would have said, well, see you guys. If we're not going to get an inheritance, we'll do our own thing. But then an event happened in the desert where Moses went to hear from God. And while he was up in the mountain, the children of Israel started worshipping a golden calf. You remember that story? And Moses comes down the, the mountain and God's judgment falls upon the people. And Moses says, those who, have, those who are for God, come stand by me. And you know who stands by him? the Levites, and it says they went through the camp killing. And basically, I'm not advocating go around killing everybody, but that, that was a picture of them saying the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, we have defamed that. We need to be purified. We need the And they went and said, God, the honor of God and the righteousness of God is more important to us than anything else. And then God says, because of this, I will be your inheritance, not a piece of land. And so when, the, when Israel took the land, they didn't get a portion. They became the priests. And there were certain cities that were given as Levitical towns. And the idea was nobody in Israel would be more than 15 kilometers away from a Levitical town where they could go and hear the word and have their disputes. So basically, there'd be an elder within walking distance of every man, woman, and child in Israel. They didn't get all the Levitical towns because the rest of the tribes began to focus so much on their own inheritance, they lost sight of the fact that they were supposed to help the Levites gain theirs. And we see this, such a beautiful principle in the Word of God in this story of how as we fight for one another, honestly, how much do I fight for Nikki to walk into his inheritance? How much do I celebrate when he walks into his inheritance? Even as one of the senior elders in Josh Jen, you know how easy it is for me when Andrew's up and talking, he goes, I've got some key guys in the church. These, these guys are so key in 412 and, and Josh Jen. People like Russell and Phil and something in me goes, what about me? You know? Or do I celebrate? Why am I not an apostle to the nations and Ryan is? Don't you know that I discipled Ryan? <laughs> or do I fight for him to walk in all he can be and be happy in what he's... Guys, the Germans have a lovely word. Schaden, Schadenfreude. Is that, 
Have I pronounced it right? Schadenfreude. Have you heard what Schaden? What have you heard the word? Basically, Germans have a word for everything. It's brilliant language. Schadenfreude is that feeling of joy you get at the downfall of another. Who's ever felt Schadenfreude? Unfortunately, we do. But it's not of God. In God's kingdom, it's the opposite. We should be we should be grieved when another falls. And we should celebrate the victory of one another. Thank you. We should celebrate one another's victories. But here's the thing about Levi, and this is for some of you. Levi had had a prophecy, you will get no inheritance. And some of you have had words spoken over you. You've grown up with maybe parents or teachers. My, My... my good friend, Brett Bevan, who led this congregation, he tells a story. Of he, he had some challenges at school. He, um, dyslexia, ADHD, he won't mind. He's, he shared this story. And he was working really, really hard to get through school till his favorite teacher said, Brett, you're never going to do anything significant. So, do you know how that kills? Do you know how that destroys? There's people here, and either people have said it, or Satan has whispered it to you, or you've said it to yourself, or you've made an internal vow, and you have convinced yourself, or others have convinced you, that you have no inheritance. I want to say, I don't know what your inheritance looks like. Each tribe's inheritance was of a different size, had different challenges, different, but each was given an inheritance by God. And the tragedy was, as you read this passage, after seven tribes came and claimed their inheritance, the process stopped. And the process stopped because the tribes stopped coming asking. And they had to be reminded. And God was saying, I'm not going to chase you down to tell you what it is. I want you to come and find out. I want you to come and seek me. Because it's there. I just need to reveal it to you. And I don't know why they didn't ask. Maybe they didn't want to fight. Maybe they were sick of fighting. Maybe they were comfortable with their existing lives. Maybe There's any, any number of reasons why we don't, but I want to tell each and every one of you, each family, as a family, you have an inheritance. You have ground to take. And your family, the victory of your family, the, 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 the ground that you take as a family is a victory for all of us. As individuals, when you overcome that stronghold, when you walk into freedom, when you repent, when you get up and prophesy for the first time, when you share the gospel, and not even, not even whether somebody's saved, but the first time you share the gospel with somebody, the first time you pray for somebody, the first time you give of your own money and say, I want to give this to God. It's a celebration because it's victory for all of us. And this congregation has got an inheritance within the inheritance that is Josh Jen or even 412. And Josh Jen will not become what God wants her to be if this congregation doesn't. And where does it start? It doesn't start with rah-rah, let me give you an exciting prophetic word about how you're going to change nations. Because, do you know where it starts? Here am I, Lord. Send me. And in Isaiah 6, and that, that scripture came. And God's been, this, I've stuck off my notes because this is what God's saying to us tonight. The very first men- thing that was mentioned tonight was inheritance. Then we had a testimony about Inheritance. God is, is saying something clear to us tonight, and we need to respond. But it's about starting with this thing. And Isaiah, in the year that Uzziah, the king Uzziah came, he sees the Lord. We know from, from the New Testament, he saw Jesus on the throne. The first thing we need, come and see Jesus on the throne. There's only one throne of your heart, and there's only one 
place for one but. On, sorry, that's not a... There's only one place for one person on the throne. And so Isaiah comes, and his first thing is what? What is me? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. The first thing is, I need to become more like you. He's confronted by God, and then the angel comes with a call and cleanses him, consecrates him. Consecrates is just another big theological word that means making you holy for a purpose. And so coming, being confronted by Christ, being cleansed by Christ, what's the next step? He is commissioned. Who will go? Who will ascend? And I love Keith Green. He's got a song. And he's like, Jesus comes to your door. And, and it's like your response is, well, you know, Lord, I just don't feel led. It's not my ministry, you know. And we have, there's a hundred ways Christians can say no. I don't feel led. It's not my ministry. So. But with Isaiah, he doesn't go, tell me my calling. Give me a prophetic word. He says, here am I, send me. Just willingness. My story is one of giftedness. It's one of willingness. I, I, I've told this before. I won't tell it now for time. I was the worst community leader in the history of Josh Jan. I led a community that grew to a maximum of nine people. At one point, three of them were under church discipline at the same time. And out of that group, the number of people who are still in Josh Jan is me and Chantel. But then the next opportunity came. I said, I'm willing. I'm probably the last person you should send, but I'm willing. And I got sent, and I did a slightly worse job. <laughs> and then and a while later, I'm willing. And I did a slightly worse job than before. But, I, but then God kicked in. And I started leading a community in Durbanville before, before we had a congregation there. We started with 30 people in Durbanville. After six months, we were down to eight, including me, my wife, and my baby daughter. <laughs> and I said to Andrew, Andrew, you need to find somebody else. I'm killing this thing. I don't want to kill this thing. And he said, Mike, God's pruning. Keep going. I said, okay, I'm willing. I really don't think I'm able. And from that moment, it began to grow, began to grow, began to grow. By the time I handed it over, it was 50 people in two communities and we planted a congregation. Which is now, how many congregations do we have in Durbanville now? And I'm not saying that to show you how gifted I am. I'm just telling you that even the most ungifted, Andrew once said he wouldn't trust me to shepherd his dog and then sent me to lead a group of people. I wasn't gifted, I was willing. And my challenge today to everybody here God wants to sanctify you. He wants to strip things away from you. Maybe what he wants to strip is your own sense of self-sufficiency. Maybe you think you are somebody. Or maybe you think you're a nobody. Who you think you are counts for nothing. It's who Christ is in us that counts. And I want to ask you tonight, are you willing to surrender yourself to the processes of God in your life, that whatever it costs, you come before him, you see him seated on the throne, you acknowledge his lordship, you allow him to sanctify you and then commission you into your inheritance that corporately we would walk in what God is calling us to do. And when you fall, come to us and say, I've fallen and we will pick you up. And when you win, we will celebrate with you. Yes. And when you get run over for, by a boat, we will pray for you and intercede for you and provide supper for you, whatever it takes. And you know, I don't believe God sent that boat, but I believe God is doing something hugely significant in Jack's life right now. I think it started before that. But I think in this point, this is not a tragedy. This is not a defeat. This is the start of something incredibly exciting. But you know what? Jacques cannot take the land unless you take your land.
We're celebrating Enya as the Selly family relocate. And what a sacrifice for, you know, with all your friends here and everything. And we got Andrew's gonna, and Andrew's gonna, Andrew cannot take the land that God has got in America and around the world without any being willing to. Really. You're a legend. You're a hero. You really are. And so I want to ask you tonight some of you may have never surrendered to Christ, some of you may have surrendered to Him 20 years ago. But surrender isn't a one-time thing. Because there's something in me, maybe, maybe you're more spiritual than I am, there's something within me that tends to rebellion. <laughs> that I surrender, and then somehow I want to pick up my own life again. And I've got to keep surrendering and keep putting to death these fleshly desires. I need to continually be consecrated. I need to be that person who understands that he has made perfect those he is perfecting. Will you surrender? Will you say, here am I, Lord. Send me. Will you give yourself to the... When we say come fire, we're not talking about, ooh, shake, rattle, and roll. We're saying burn away that that isn't of you so that what remains looks more like you. Father, we thank you that we didn't choose you, you chose us. While we were still objects of wrath, while we were dead in our sin, while we were incapable, you came and reached out to us. And you sent your son who showed us what true obedience is like. Your perfect son who was holy both, both majestically and morally, and he came as a man to create a way for us to be made holy. And we want to be a people who surrender to you. We want to be a holy people, a people who become more like you because we know we're called, we are set aside for a purpose. And Lord, we want to fulfill that purpose because we want to see you glorified. We want to see your name lifted up. We want people to see you in us. And we want it to be said of us as it was said of David when we leave this place, that we served the purposes of God in our generation. I pray for each individual, each family, each community, and for this congregation, Lord, that they would know what is the land that you want them to take, what are the enemies you want them to defeat, and that there would be a Caleb-like spirit, especially in those who've been around a long time, and say, give me my inheritance, give me the hill country, and I will take it. Don't be infested by giants. I will defeat them and take my inheritance to the glory of God. Let that Caleb spirit rise up in us to your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.